0: Welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, to call my guest this week a political YouTuber is rather an understatement. Carl Benjamin, who was known for quite a long time as Sargon of Arcad, is a phenomenon on social media with hundreds of thousands of followers. As well as his own YouTube channel, he also is host of LotusEaters.com. Um, and he's with me now. Thank you so much, Garth, for coming.
1: Um,
0: I must get something kind of cleared up. Um, Lotus eaters and also Sargon. Uh, these are steeped in classical illusion, are they
1: not? They are deliberately so. I'm a, i I'm I'm a big fan of ancient history. Is right. the, the the simplest way to put it? I find it deeply romantic and alien it's it's so very different to the way we live our lives now and we don't understand it and so the modern view of the ancient world is clouded with our own presuppositions and our own uh, assumptions about language and beliefs and relations between people Mm -hmm. uh, that we are transposing onto them and it's very difficult to try and Separate yourself from that and get into the heads of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, one one of the one of the one of the classic um, questions I will forever have is how did Hannibal persuade a hundred thousand men and forty elephants to go across the Alps in winter to invade Rome? Mm-hmm. I mean, invading Rome is a suicidal prospect at the best of times, and they knew that at the time. It sounded ludicrous, but somehow he got a city to move across in, in the tremendous difficulty. The unbelievable prospect of death laying before them with the expectation that they would win. And I'm just, that there, there has to have been something much deeper going on in the way that they viewed the world. Yeah. Because I, as a modern 21st century man, was like, well, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> that's lunacy.
0: But what 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 can we get from, I mean, wh- wh- what do you get from it? I mean, I know you just, it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and, mm. and it's sort of expansive, isn't it? And mm. outward. And that's what is attractive. About it. But, you know, because I think Probably a lot of younger people don't, you know, they don't know much about this history. Mm. Um, and I, I noticed with on Lotus Eaters, you actually do do a lot of podcasts purely about ancient history, don't
1: you? Absolutely. We, we try to also cover those topics that aren't in the mainstream, because if you go to Hollywood and ask them, well, what about history? You hear about the Roman Empire and Caesar Mm. and, and the fall of the Republic, and that's pretty much it. Or you might get the Battle of Agincourt, if you're lucky, or you might get Napoleon. And it's like, okay, that's interesting, but very narrow, and history is actually much broader. And one of the things that we learn from history is the range of human experience is far greater than anything we have now. In fact, one of the things that I think... Britain can pride itself on is actually civilizing ourselves and, and a large part of the world to the point where we don't have to go through these kind of trials. Because as much as I might be romanticizing them uh, in my own modern way, uh, they were there was a huge amount of suffering a huge amount of endurance and just grit and determination to carry almost any of it through. I mean, one example is the Persian invasion of Greece. Uh, Xerxes built a bridge across the Bosphorus, across what was called the Hellespont. And just the description of how the bridge was built, was boats lashed together, that was then covered in earth, covered in reeds, and then covered in more earth, in order so that he could march thousands of cavalry across. And that's an unbelievable endeavour. That's unbelievable. You know, and I, if someone were to task me with that, I, would, oh God, I wouldn't know where to start.
0: Was this something that you
1: liked as a kid? You know, not particularly. It was actually um, <clears throat> it was actually in my early twenties that I mm-hmm. got into it after I'd left university. And I, I, looking back now, I wish I'd been interested in it when I was young, I and mean, I would have done a history degree at university and things like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I just kind of stumbled upon this, and I found a deep love for it.
0: Well, when we were talking earlier before you came on uh, we, we were talking a little bit about ancient english history mm. and i mean i i this is a very hazy for someone who talks a lot about mm. english it's a very hazy era for me but i mean particularly you were talking about
1: uh alfred mm. and this i find this fascinating i mean what is it exactly
0: mm.
1: one thing i really like about alfred the great is that he was a scholar before he was anything else yeah. and he is a fascinating character, and he very much had events thrust upon him. Uh, Wessex being the last of the English kingdoms to fall, uh, the, the Vikings had taken the rest. And one thing that comes out of that is actually surprisingly there's there's a there's a compilation of uh, poems and essays and well, I, I suppose we'd call them poems uh, from the English history called the Essex Book. Mm. And I I posted a copy of this fairly recently actually, and I just read through all of them, even the ones that are you know overtly religious. I'm I'm a child of the '90s, so I'm I'm an I'm an atheist, and I've been uh, gr- raised in a materialist culture, and so it's it's difficult for me to be able to believe in God or anything like that. And I don't think I ever will, um, but I'm not. I don't feel I have a loss there either. I, do, I I don't have a part of me that misses that, but I do find myself romanticizing. Our traditions and history here. And I think because I think there is actually a great deal of good there, and there's a remarkable amount of consistency. Uh, Alfred doesn't sound like he's writing from a thousand to three hundred years ago, he actually sounds surprisingly modern. And one thing that I find fascinating is how he is taking responsibility. For what's happening to England at the time. He blames the Viking invasions on the English becoming uh, loose with their morals and failing to follow the correct path as laid out by God and Jesus. And so what Alfred does personally is translates the Bible into English, at the time, old English obviously now, uh, but English at the time, and then sends these copies of the Bible around the country. Now, that was something that started the Protestant revolutions, was Mm -hmm. it not, in the printing Mm -hmm. press? This was a revolutionary idea, and Alfred did it a thousand years before it happened on the continent, because he just thought it was the right thing to do. The average average Englishman needed to know about what was happening, and what the, the right thing to do should be, as laid down by God, because of course there were deeply Christian. Uh, But one one of the things that I found really interesting is the theme that runs through it is that there has been something that has been lost during the Viking invasions, because he begins one of his pieces of writing by just saying, England used to be a happy place, and then the Vikings arrived. And I found that fascinating because, of course, you get the the echoes of it throughout the medieval era with the term Merry Old England, which continued on until the Victorians because it was a romantic ideal. And it, I think, gained its best popular culture representation in Tolkien and the Shire, who, of course, was a massive scholar, uh, one of the premier scholars of Anglo-Saxon history, and clearly had modelled mm-hmm. uh, the hobbits on mm-hmm. the small people of the Shires. and. It, that there's a there's a kind of dual romanticism that comes out of English history after the Norman conquest, so of course the Normans being becoming English kings, tremendous conquerors there's you if there's one major European success story in the middle ages, it's the Normans uh, and the massive success stories in the east from the Mongols and various other step nomads but in in the West it's the Normans and it's Fortunate for the English that they had such energetic kings mm. and capable kings, uh, because what this allowed England to do is be an expansionist power. And it's that comes on the heels of the terrible struggles that the English suffered under the Viking invasion. And if there's if there's one poem I would recommend, it's called The Wanderer. It's only about The Wanderer. The wanderer. It, the, <clears throat> this is the poem that Tolkien based um, Lord of the Rings on, and it's about a lone Anglo-Saxon man who has lost his friends and family and is now uh, sailing across the rime-covered seas, lost and alone, and has nowhere to go. And it's the most sorrowful thing I've ever read in my life.
0: What What were the qualities of Merry England, and Carl? I mean, I, sort of, I think of Falstaff and all of that, which of course yeah. is way
1: later. But it's the same. It's the but same idea. What is it then? What are those qualities? It, it's about a kind of right ordering of the world. There, there, there is an appropriate way for the world to be ordered, and the, you know that involves a person at the top. It's hierarchical. You know, there, there is a there is a place for hierarchy in this, but there's also a strain of equality to it as well. And the the idea of equality, uh, the rule of law, so that the law that flows from the king, the king himself should be subjected to, is actually quite an unusual thing when it first crops up. But it, it's present in the sort of oldest Robin Hood myths, where there's one myth where the king uh, sneaks into Robin Hood's camp, and. Robin Hood is dealing out uh, justice essentially. So the the merry men that eat they then uh, engage in an archery competition and if you miss by three fingers or something you get a smack round the head. And uh, you know the first you know Will Scarlet misses um Little John misses and so Robin Hood smacks them. Then Robin misses and so someone needs to smack him and the king in his uh, secret you know in his uh, disguise. He's the one who smacks Robin Hood, and then the king misses, and then so Robin Hood smacks him. And it's very interesting how that that and that, mm-hmm. that's like a 12th century poem. You know, mm-hmm. this is a very this is very old. This is before Magna Carta. This this is a very old concept that actually no, the rules should apply to everyone regardless of your station. Yeah, and that's a that's a very like a very deep moral principle that seems to have been uh and originated in England from this kind of view that the world should be ordered in a certain way that's fair to everyone mm-hmm. and one of the one of the um one of the, i think the most nourishing parts about it is that it's about letting people just live their lives. You know, this is why the hobbits in the Shire seem so homely. You know, they, they, they're, not, they're not being interfered with by some central government. No, they're expected to just go and live their lives, be good people, have their relationships, you know, enjoy, their, enjoy themselves, work hard, obviously, you know, so you've got lots to, you know, enjoy, but, you know, sing and dance and make merry and be happy. Mm. And that, that, was, that was what it seemed that it was all all about. Where could one find that now? I mean,
0: you know, I've made this point on, on this show of times, and I remember L- Rod Little really mocking me for it. You know, I, I this idea of fairness and mm-hmm. one rule for all and mm-hmm. everything seems to have been flouted, if that's mm. the right word. Uh, uh, it's probably not enough mm. recently. Um, I said, well, "Where is this sort of the English truculence about this?" Is it, no, no, it's, it's kind of uh, it's it's gone." Yes. Um, do you see? any through line
1: in the England of today with this past? It's, I think, very deeply baked into our lizard brains. It's, 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 because these, these things are unconscious. And so we, we, there, there are, there are language, there there are sort of habits of language that we still have that have this intonation Mm -hmm. that underpins it. But it's, it's something that i think has been deliberately attacked during the 20th century uh, because of the conquest of science over mythology over religion over th- uh, romance and that's failed that project uh, there was there were many projects there were there were specifically there was a, a project uh, that's called logical positivism there was a philosophical project that was designed to have a value free form of language mm. and that failed because it's Simply not possible. All language seems to originate from an individual perspective, and then it's hard to devalue that. You know, say that that person has no interests and can't value anything. And so th- this this project failed. And so, but what this what this ended up doing, I think, is opening the door to the sort of corporate speak that we have now. This kind of sanitized, politically correct. Uh, the the sort of language that HR uses, you know, um, and it's awful and it's dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of language robots would design and we don't need to use it. We can actually use value judgments when we're describing a circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I think we're actually right to do so because what we're doing when we allow them to get away with this kind of thinning of language mm-hmm. is to present a neutral playing field as if good and evil are the same. They're just two sides of the same coin. Who cares? No, there, there's a real effect when you allow them to present wrong as right and right as wrong. And in a, in a more sensible world, uh, say, I mean, just a just hundred years ago, uh, the the very words we would use to describe certain circumstances now would never have been used. And we would be using much more loaded terms, such as deceit, betrayal, yeah. you know, yeah. cruelty, yeah. you know, yeah. wantonness. They, we would be using words that had judgments in them, and rightfully so. I mean, like, just look, the, the fact that the grooming gangs are still operating around this country mm. is, I, I just can't imagine. Just go back a hundred years. I mean, this is the same as Alfred looking at the Vikings raping and pillaging. Mm. It's it's no different. It's like little, they're raping children, yeah, and specifically English children. And if you speak to the victims of these grooming gangs, these victims will say, yeah, they're doing it because they think we're failed Christians, because we're English and we're not Christian, and so they don't respect us, mm. and so they don't think that you know they they know that we've got no family and friends. who are going to come for us because normally when if I mean normally in a in a in a small English village, if a man were to steal away a child, a small girl, and, and rape her, you get a dozen men and go. And, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't happen now.
0: You mentioned there about, you know, using strong words like Mm. deceitful. Mm. uh, There has been a flight from judgment, hasn't there? Absolutely. The worst thing you can say now to someone, which is sort of connected to what you're saying about grooming gangs too, actually, Mm -hmm. in a wider sense, is uh, that you're judgmental, or as the Americans call it, judgy. Yeah. You know, Um, it seems to me that we have been... um,
1: you know, we've been
0: gifted with judgment. That's what Do makes you. us human beings, isn't
1: it? Well, I mean, this. So, I think the the problem is that we've been conditioned to essentially see ourselves as isolated individuals, devoid of significant relationships. And one of the one of the main things I think I think in say sort of hundred years time, they'll look back and say, "What the government could say that you don't own your children." Uh, and that's mad. That's an absolutely mad statement because I can't see how the government can have a claim to my children. They're mine. I own those children, and that's good for them because I love them. You know, I want the best for them. I don't think the government cares about them at all any more than they are numbers on a spreadsheet to the government. And so the... the, But the, the... the importance and the primacy of these relationships are from where we draw our judgments, mm-hmm. and it's how I feel you've behaved to me, or I've behaved mm-hmm. to you. And you can, and and when you, if, if it's someone that you love, and they say, "Well, you've betrayed me here, you've disappointed me, if you've wow. hurt me," then that that's an emotional obligation and a pull on me. And there's nothing, you know, we're, we're way outside of the bounds of talking about science and reason now. Now we're talking about how we feel about things, and that's not wrong for us to be able to articulate this in in a way that is powerful you know this is what gets civilizations moving this is what this is what binds 100,000 men to hannibal as he crosses the alps yes. you know he, yes. they they have a relationship with him they're not just signing a contract and be like well you're paying me 50 you know, denarii a month or something, so I've got to do it. They're not doing that. They're doing it because they, they feel they have deep moral obligations. And this is why, like, when, when Caesar's army turns on him, or Alexander's army, like, we don't want to go any further into the Bosphorus. You can read Alexander's speech. It's been recorded. You can read it. It's deeply emotional. And he's saying, I went through this with you. I suffered every hardship that you suffered. You know, and they say, well, you know, you owe us. You know, we want to see our families back in Greece. You know, you owe us and then Alexander turns back. So they, 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 there's, there's deep moral importance in the relationship that we have with each other. And these can be large numbers of people that have relationships. In fact, nations, you know, there, there's deep moral importance in the national connections that we have. And one of these things that's under attack at the moment is the concept of banter between the British nations, between the English, Scots and Welsh and Irish. That's a terrible thing right? Because people don't seem to understand that these, these relationships are ancient, you know, they, they they these relationships predate the arrival of Polynesians in the Polynesian Islands, you know, the, the, these relationships go back over a thousand years, you know, England was a United Nations in something like 950, and the Scots in like 860, something like this, and they've been neighbours ever since, and so if I I, and to the Welsh, of course, as well. And so if if I make a joke about a Scotsman, that Scotsman can now go to the police and say, oh, this this person said something racially aggravating to me. It's like, okay, now you've broken that bond because Mm. there's always a reply. The mm-hmm. Scot can always, he knows he's got a reply to an Englishman that he can just shoot back with and i like, oh, okay, fair enough. And there, there, there's something that's created when you engage in this kind of banter. There's a kind of confirmation there. Because if I want to make a joke about a Scot, I need a Scot to be there. There's no point in me making a yes. joke about the empty space where a Scot used to be. And so I now, the way I view the world is that there should be a Scot there. Mm-hmm. And so that's confirmating. That's, that's saying that you belong. You know, and I as the Englishman, I belong when you're making your joke back at me. And that's, that's validating, you know, and it it's gives you a, a reassuring way of understanding that, look, we understand each other. We have a shared language because, you know, the, the Scot can't make that same joke against someone from Vietnam or something mm. like that. They've got no relationship there. They don't know anything about each other. They've got no shared culture. They've got no shared expectations. So they, they're alien to one another. They're, they're unsure. They don't know what to do.
0: But it's sort of, it's been uh, deconstructed, mm. but also sort of almost denied, isn't mm-hmm. it? Sort of like this was not really ever the case. That, that's what I feel about a lot of the historical, mm. uh, it's retrospective reevaluation evaluation of, of our whole history, mm. whether it's about migration to, oh, Britain's a country of migrants, for example. Yeah. This is just factually wrong. I yes. mean, this is just factually wrong. Um, would you say... You are a proud Englishman, absolutely, as opposed to a proud Britishman.
1: Uh, well, I think I mean, when you say Britishman, sounds weird, doesn't? Yes, it? Yes, it
0: does. Yes, it I, doesn't sound I'd right. Faltered rather yeah. there because I don't know what yeah. to actually.
1: Well, that's because that's that's not really a thing. British isn't an ethnic group; it's an, an a civic identity. I think it's a valuable one, you know, and I think it's good that. We can have that open to everyone, Uh, but uh, English is an ethnic identity, and I think it is wrong to try and take people's ethnic identities away from them. Uh, It's deeply disempowering. One of the things you're doing is severing the relations. If I'm not an Englishman, then a Scot can't make a joke about me. And if he's not a Scotsman, I can't make a joke about him, and I'm not confirmed in the reassurance that we know where we stand. And so now I'm isolated. I don't know him. I don't know his, his thoughts on me. Yes. you know, And I don't know how I should behave in certain circumstances and how I should respond to jokes or you know, maybe I should take them as insults. Maybe I should be in a, in a fight now. Now now. maybe we should take up arms against you. Who knows? Banter is a way of making sure that everyone knows their place. And this is not just like casually being undermined or coming to the end of its natural lifestyle uh, cycle. This is... We, we are suffering a direct siege on our culture from an enemy who is open about the fact that they want to abolish what we have. I mean, the, the most explicit example of this, in my opinion, is the decolonization movement in Oxford. How can you decolonize an English university? You, of course, can't. What this really is, is a de-Anglicization program of England. And so what this leads us to is a moral question that I don't think that the the wider public are ready to answer. And that is, do the English, as an ethnic group, have a moral claim to England? Mm. And the left will say no. They will say no. They will say that the English don't exist. And if they do exist, they're evil and we should abolish them. And I don't think that we should allow ourselves to be abolished. The thing is
0: that that's the modern left. Yes. But, like, if you think, you know, we always press the levelers into action in these situations. We do, yeah. But, But... but uh, even going right to Tony Benn, mm-hmm. uh, I would have thought they had a very strong sense of wow. Jerusalem,
1: uh, a very strong sense of English. Um, they used to be. Mm. They absolutely used to be. And Jeremy Corbyn, I think, would have actually been the sort of tail end of that. Yes, uh, I know what you mean. And, it, it, and it's a shame that the modern left, and, and just to be clear, the forces that are besieging our culture are entirely foreign. And they again are self-conscious. Uh, they begin. I think you could probably. I mean, they're a form of communism, and they've worked out at the at the end of the twentieth uh, nineteenth century. The communists realized that the proletariat are not a revolutionary force. And that was greatly disappointing to them because, of course, Marx had said, well, look, the the capitalist system will make the situation so unbearable, the proletariat will rise up and abolish it. And they'll bring about a socialistic, uh, social socialist dictatorship that will wither away into a communist utopia. None of that happened. Uh, and it turned out that, in fact, rather than being a revolutionary force, the proletariat are actually the most far right reactionary force going because why wouldn't they be? It's their relationships that they're defending. It's their knowledge and connections with their friends and family and the place that they live in that they're defending. Of course, they're not revolutionary. They live a nice life. They like their lives. They like the people around. They're not going to rise up. Uh, and they, they would only rise up against the tyrannical authority like a socialist regime. Mm. Um, but it's very clear that this has gone um, through... I mean, it went through... It, it sort of branched out into Leninism, fascism, and then whatever you want to call the... Uh, the Frankfurt School, which then went to America and then ended up merging with a bunch of the postmodern French intellectuals like Foucault, Derrida, De Beauvoir, and this gestated in American universities and emerged as something called critical legal scholarship. And out of critical legal scholarship came something called critical race theory. And essentially, to To summarize it very briefly, critical race theory seems to want, and I'm not an expert and I'm still studying it, but it seems to want parallel legal systems for different ethnic groups, which I think is an unacceptable prospect. Uh, I think there should be one rule, the rule of law, for all people in a given country. Uh, And I probably think that because I'm an Englishman, Mm. Uh, but I'm not going to move from that position. I, I demand it. I demand it.
0: How would you actually characterise yourself now, actually, politically? I mean, I know that Mm -hmm. this is, you know, boring uh, question number 64 Mm -hmm. probably, but, I mean, you know, is there a shorthand for how, for what you would call yourself?
1: Uh, Well, uh, Okay. So what's interesting is I wasn't really talking about politics before. Uh, I was really talking about social life and how I see myself socially in relation to other social groups and in relation to individuals in those groups. And none of that required government intervention. You know, whenever I I meet a Scottish friend of mine, we have lots of good banter and I don't need the government to sign off on any of this. but how, how do I think that the world should be structured when it comes to politics? Um, I actually very much agree with, frankly, the classical liberal ideal. Uh, I'm a constitutionalist. My sacred document is the Magna Carta. I went to the, uh, the Magna Carta in Salisbury Cathedral uh, when I was on my UKIP tour, in fact. And I found it amazing that it's not guarded. It's not guarded. Mm. You just walk in there. I could have just picked it up. Mm. And if I was someone who was a hater of English culture, I could go in there and burn it. It's an 800-year-old document it's irreplaceable. There are the four in existence. And that's another miracle as well, isn't it? You know, imagine having four copies of a document that's 800 years old. Four 800 year old. like that. We should have these under lock and key. They shouldn't just be, you know, I mean, the, the, the lady the lady who was there just showing people around was just, I mean, if, if something terrible had happened, mm. she was, you know, she was a very knowledgeable old dear, but she wasn't going to be able to stop them. Uh, and so I was, quite, I came away from that thinking, well, I'm glad I've seen it. It's in Latin, so I couldn't read it. Uh, I'm glad I've seen it, but like, I'm concerned now because I know that there are these forces that will topple statues, that will try and destroy and desecrate our cultural heritage. Um, but when, but when it comes to like how, 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 politically, how do I see myself? I still see myself as a classical liberal. I think that we should have constitutional protections. I think that this should be for everyone. Each individual should have constitutional protections. I I don't think that, I think there should be limits on government. I think there should be a delineation between the public and the private. Uh, and I think there are places where the government shouldn't be.
0: Uh, I mean the reason I ask that is because obviously when one talks about traditions and and, and, and such like, the, the general assumption is that that is a conservative position. Um, it doesn't have to be, but I think that that is, I would say, it's a general, general assumption.
1: Well, on, on that point, actually, can I make a point? Because mm. it's very interesting you say that. Because I'm sure you'll have noticed very radically left-wing people who absolutely fetishize the native cultures of other places mm. and they will go all around the world and say well look this this man with the bone through his nose look at his beautiful tri- tribal traditions uh, are these not his heritage is this not and, and that that sounds like an incredibly conservative position it's so, okay well i but i accept it, it that, that's fine i agree you know i mean as long as he's not burning his wife alive or something you know when when he wants or whatever you know because i i am a, obviously a believer in human rights so uh you know that's fine it, you know as long as he's not Doing any particular damage, but why can't we apply that same standard to our own mm. culture? Because actually, we've got that here. You know, I mean, and foreigners absolutely apply that same standard. They like you can read what foreigners write about England in particular, and it sounds like a fairy tale country that you'd made up in a in a Lord of the Rings mm. novel. It just sounds made up. I mean, you realize this is actually a real place. It kind of just makes me want to be the Englishman that foreigners think we are. You know, it makes me think, okay, well, I should probably live up to this. You know, this is a good standard. And that, that, the, the word standard, I think, is an important one that we don't think about. Because the reason England is, frankly, better than other countries is because of these standards. And it goes right the way back to Alfred. Alfred didn't say, God, why have you done this to us? Alfred didn't be like, oh, it's those Vikings. No, Alfred's like, we did this. Mm. We did this. We are the ones who strayed from the path, and we got what we deserved. And so we have to change. We'll, we'll improve ourselves. We will take responsibility. We will improve our standards. And all of English civilization has been about maintenance of high standards. And all I see now is an attack on these standards. Yeah. Your standards are very exclusive. And the whole point is exclusivity. Like the, this, this movement for total inclusivity well, why would you want that? Mm. Well, who wants anything that's open to everyone? Mm. No one wants anything that's open to everyone. The whole, the, all of value comes from exclusivity. And the more exclusive it is, the more valuable it is. And so the higher your standards, the more difficult it is, the better the people that you get achieving the standards and therefore getting the position. This is what we would otherwise describe as a meritocracy. And again, all of these words, I'm sure you've heard them deeply under attack from the left. Uh, we have to defend them. They know what they're doing. They know that if they can destroy these standards, then they can essentially erase our culture because that's the they, these are the pillars of the culture. This is this is what holds up the sky as far as we're concerned. And we have to be we have to patrol this. We have to be on guard, saying so no, we're not prepared to drop these standards. And the assumption from the left as well is deeply, deeply racist in my opinion that foreigners can't abide by these standards. No, I think they can. I absolutely think they can. Yeah. And what's more is I think they should. Is even more. I, it would be good for them to take from our example and follow these standards. Because it's not like we, this was easy. You know, it's not easy to adho- uphold these standards. But it is good. It is it is an upward momentum. It makes you a better person. It makes the world around you better. And it stops you being envious and gross and Violent and destructive. Look at Black Lives Matter. It's just mm-hmm. an en- a movement built on envy to destroy what other people have. And what's worse is they're not even they're not even harming the billionaires. They're harming the small businessman who's like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get up early today. I'm going to make sure that I get that shipment in and it's on the shelves and we'll get people and I'll make some money and I'll have made the world a better place in my own small way. You know that's what's under attack right
0: now. You said we've got to be on our guard. Yes, about that. Um, In your work, uh, you know, you're on air a huge amount of the time, aren't you? Oh,
1: yeah, you know, a couple of hours every day, I suppose. Okay,
0: all right. Well, throughout that time, and also just, what is your perception? How many people are on their guard? Or do you think that it's...
1: Well, thankfully, a lot. um, Because the, the, the problem with, well... I mean, it is a problem, obviously, but the characteristic of left-wing ideology and activism is that it is totalizing it is in always in all aspects of life something that is always itself on patrol for its own boundaries. Uh, so if you were to say something that's not controversial in any other respect, but if you're in a if you're in a group that's doing sewing and knitting and stuff and this is a real example actually uh, a real example of knitting and the question of the definition of woman comes up you you say well there's a there's a lady over there someone could say to you, well how do you know that's a lady you know because I can see her. You know, she obviously presents herself to be a lady and I can see the biology that's underneath her clothes from the shape of her body and so I know that's a lady. I say, yeah, but how do you know that doesn't identify as a man? And you haven't even asked their pronouns. And so suddenly this knitting circle on a totally trivial point has become highly politicized and a a, a nexus of this culture war. So there, there is nowhere that is outside of this and so we have to be on patrol for it all the time as well.
0: I find I don't know you, you have this this uh, because when when one does things on YouTube or mm. is politically active like mm. you were you know standing for election two thousand nineteen wasn't it the lowest, oh, uh, the European election I it thought, was
1: yeah. the, the the European election we should never have had
0: yes uh, you know when you're doing those things it can be a very a great outlet mm. but I would say that what suddenly happened to me is that COVID aside I find myself. Waking up in the morning thinking, well, okay, what thing that I've always loved is about to be cancelled, shut on from a big height? Mm. What thing that I always took for granted is no longer, uh, and uh, you know, I will be thought the worse of it uh, for taking it for granted bit by bit by bit all the Mm -hmm. time. Do you have that experience? Or or every day,
1: every day. I mean, every the first thing I do every day is get up and make sure that the online presence that I have is still there because. The sword of Damocles may have dropped overnight while I was asleep, and uh, they may have just because we have we have very little power uh, over these decisions, and they can be made totally arbitrarily, and you've got no recourse. And honestly, it's a wonder that YouTube is people people always complain about YouTube's moderation, and uh, and I have plenty of complaints about it. But they are still the most permissive platform that we have. Uh, they are much better than uh, Facebook's actually improving in this way. Uh, because I think Mark Zuckerberg, I've I've watched enough of his interviews to, to realize that he he sees that what he's doing is very impactful and he understands that hang on. Uh, if you want to be a platform for everyone, unfortunately that means everyone. Uh, not just the progressives in California. Um, but we we are the the Twitter has effectively become Mordor at this point. And so what the Twitter mob is, is the Eye of Sauron looking around for the ring. And the ring is whoever is being counter-progressive at the time. Mm-hmm. And so anyone who can get the attention of the Twitter mob to rile up a big anger, then the Eye of Sauron comes down and whoever that person is and destroys them. And so the the trick is to try and avoid that. What, uh, just
0: going back to that point, obviously I... I I totally get mm. the thing about YouTube, um, but in your own life, and wh- what is what do you find when when you wake up in the morning? You have to check that you're still on. But you know, oh, there you, are certain magazines I used to kind of read. Yeah. I no longer do. There's certain, yeah. pa- obviously, the papers, things like that. But even in, you know, you mentioned knitting. Uh, yeah, it, it is the politicization, is it not, of everything, all of society.
1: Um, the so the, there's uh, there's a there's an american historian called robert conquest oh, yeah. uh, and you're probably familiar with his, his three laws of politics i can't remember which law it was now but one of them is i think it's the second law where it's any institution that's not explicitly right-wing will eventually become left-wing and that is something that you can predict in advance mm. And so unless it is an explicit right-wing organization, essentially just expect every organization or institution that you like and you're aware of to fall to leftism, because they will agree to the premises of left-wing ideology. And it's because, uh, and I'm sad to say this, but it is true that critical race theory and intersectionality are a product of classical liberalism, as bastardized by Marxists. And it's they're explicit about this. Uh, There's a book that I recommend to everyone. It's insanely boring it's a collection of academic texts from critical legal scholars who became the critical race theorists called critical race theory the key writings that formed the movement and in there i can't remember which essay it was offhand but they expressly say that what we'll do is we'll simply stretch the definitions of words in order to encapsulate their opposites in order to ruin the foundations Of the people that we're arguing against so they will have to agree with our premises and this is how we end up with words that are just totally bastardized like there's from a from the progressive perspective if racism is institutional oppression why would you ever call someone a racist Mm -hmm. you're not an institution you're a person Mm -hmm. unless you're an elected politician or something or a a a functionary in a in a bureaucracy or something there's no point calling anyone a racist Mm -hmm. Because I'm just sat here on the bench, you know, and I have an opinion, oh, that you're a racist. You don't, how could I be mm. from your say, But from our perspective, of course, we believe that racism is a process. We believe it's something that someone believes and, and does to someone else. And of course, then we could be racists. of course. Mm. You know, and of course, you know, we oppose that idea <clears throat> because why would you be? It's, it's totally unfair. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's a deliberate attempt from within our own ideology by Marxists in order to bring about communism, frankly.
0: That's a- my next question, actually, mm. so this is the, you know, this is the point, isn't it? Really, um, a lot of people say, "Oh, cultural Marxism." This isn't really a thing. I don't even know whether you would meant cultural Marxism.
1: Though. Well, I've, I don't use the term cultural Marxism because it's too loaded. Okay. Uh, I, but but it is it is Marxist, and they are trying to affect the culture.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially, going about the whole thing in a different way, but with the end result being exactly
1: the same. Yes. They, they just the liquidation of standards, the mm. liquidation of barriers, mm. uh, because again, we guys remember the the communist ideal is that nobody owns anything and sits around as if they're in the Garden of Eden, picking fruit off the trees and presumably philosophizing and looking at the stars and thinking. And it's like, okay, but this is nonsense. Mm. You know, this this doesn't. That You know, you don't produce a good civilization like that. There's a reason that mankind struggled to get out of that position because, you know, the, as, as idyllic as it might sound, it's only idyllic until you break your leg, mm. or until you get sick, or until your child is mm. ill and dies. Mm. And then you realize, oh, God, actually, maybe all of the things that we struggled to develop to prevent all these things were actually a good thing in the, in the first place. And really, I think this is based on a difference between English philosophy and continental philosophy in the Enlightenment. I mean... The English view is the Hobbesian view. You know, man's life is nasty, brutish, and short, and he's not very nice. This is why we need civilization, to civilize us. Mm. And the French view is very much Rousseau's view, which is man should never have put down the stakes that marked out the first plot of land because that has uh, society corrupts him, is the view of the French and the, the sort of continental philosophers. And again, the, the, the Marxists take this up completely and assume that people are just naturally good. It's like, I don't agree that they are. I think it takes a great deal. I actually very much agree with Aristotle on this. You have to be habituated into good behavior, into good morals. And you don't just pick them up on your own. You're not going to just invent them. They have to be something you work on and are conscious of. And, I, and you know, I think the ancient Greeks knew that. I think the English knew that. And I think the French and the Germans are lying to themselves.
0: Do you think that, that uh, you have to be consciously socialized into, into that mm-hmm. belief? Do you think that that, has to come from a, a, a Christian belief.
1: No, no. I mean, this like Aristotle predates Christianity, and yes, he. Yes. And honestly, like I've I've recently been reawoken to, to to the accuracy of Aristotle's understanding of what a human life requires. Uh, and I've been working on it very hard, and I've lost a huge amount of weight. I feel amazing. I feel like I'm I'm a much better husband and father right. for it, uh, because he, it's just his view of virtue. It doesn't require any supernatural beliefs at all. It's completely secular. So, what did you have to jettison then? If you say it's about his idea of virtue, so
0: what what did you say I've got to change?
1: Uh, what I had to change is my view of materialism, uh, because essentially uh, I think that we uh, the the the, the, the the idea that we're purely materialistic is essentially the consequence of these logical positivists that I mentioned earlier. And I think that that view has fallen out of favor, both in the academy and in kind of like, in, in like online circles, I'll say. Because there's quite a few Christians online who are like, Actually, gaining some ground because they're like, "Hey, I, I've got a sort of metaphysical view of the world here, and it's it's doing me some good." And Aristotle's presenting a metaphysical view of the world, and it's thankfully a secular one, and I'm happy to adopt it because it's right. That um, the, so the the thing I liked about Aristotle is the way he conceives of the four kinds of man. So you've got the vicious man who is an evil man and enjoys being evil. No one wants to be that man. Uh, then you have the incontinent man who is evil but doesn't really want to be and then you have the continent man who is good but doesn't really want to be and you have the virtuous man who's good and wants to be and it's it's actually in relation to diet that i actually think this is a really useful framing because my my wife is in the same position as i am but she doesn't adopt this kind of thinking so she's on the diet that she hates and she she has to Grin and grit of teeth just go through. It, I'll just have my bowl of salad. And, uh, but I, I, uh, I chose a different diet. To I'm on the keto diet. Uh, and so basically, you're not allowed uh, sugar or carbs. And that sounds terrifying, right? It sounds terrifying. But then I realized that actually, I can still have quite a lot of the foods I like. You know, I can still have bacon and cheese and, you know, just, you know, so you, you're, you're getting sugar free chocolate. And so it's not so bad. Uh, but then you start to like the results. And then you realize, oh no, I actually find the sugar and the carbs kind of disgusting. You know, you end up developing mm. a kind of disgust response mm. to them, and so you love not having the bad things. You love having good things, and so and in the in the realm of the diet, in in Aristotle's view, you're kind of a virtuous diet, you know, in, in, engaging the virtuous diet, and uh, and it, it really seems to work. And, oh my God, it's warm here. Yes, um, no, exactly. it's, yeah, no, no, it's the heat. We are
0: in a very very hot day yeah. while we're doing doing this. Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, and so that, that, again, no God required, no God required. But the idea that there's something about yourself that is actually a bit sacred and there's a kind of way of entering into a state of affairs. And again, a diet is actually a really good way of looking at this, because when you break your diet, you know that you've done something wrong. Because you set yourself a task. You're going to get to a sort of end state. And to do that, you have to be in a particular condition, a state of affairs. A state of affairs where you haven't eaten this. You haven't done that. You've done some exercise. You've got boundaries. You've got an an order that you've created. And while you're doing the right thing, the order exists. And you know it exists. But then when you get that donut and you eat that donut, you've broken it and you know you've broken it. You've defiled it. And that's the, the... So there is something there that is the kind of that is slightly sacred. You know, it's not related to God or anything, it's related to your own opinion of yourself, but there is something that you've created. And it's, and I think that this is important. This is, this is the sort of essence of what our relationships are. It's like marriage particularly, right? So if if you cheat on your wife, then you knew that you had an agreement with your wife, that you would, you've created a state of affairs when you get married. This is exclusive. It's me and you, and that's been for all time. And then when you break that, that can never be repaired. I can never be, there will always be the knowledge of that betrayal. That's in the in. Even if you can work past it, it'll never be the same as it was. And so the question really is one of prudence. It's like, look, you have to accept. You know, you know that that's the case. You know, you have this kind of sacred thing that's been created. Are you prepared to break it? And that's yeah. That's something that you have to think about.
0: Carl, when I we were talking about, you know, basically how one lives one's life privately if you like personally and also how one's beliefs inform your life um you did stand as I said for election so that was actually taking it a step further actually and and hoping to to represent what you know people in you know with what you believe hmm. um what as an experience was it like for you did you
1: enjoy it I loved it you loved it? I loved every second of it. Oh, really? There, there was a strange uh, confusion within UKIP at the time. I know I'm not an expert on the inner workings of the party politics or anything right. like that. And, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm speaking ill of anyone there because I very much liked everyone that I met. But I, I was obviously coming into something that had a deep series of relationships entwined in it and people had personal grudges and things like this and, and all this sort of stuff. And so I, I tried to avoid all that. And I, I was just like, right, Okay what can i do so i've always um i guess my dad has always told me look do something work do something move you know don't don't just sit on your ass get something done mm-hmm. and one of the problems i found was that nobody was really campaigning with ukip and um, when this came along i was i was i just said to my team we only had like two of us uh, me and two other chaps I was, I was like do you guys fancy doing something and they're like, yeah, okay, we'll do the, the Southwest tour. Yeah. And, and so it was just this amazing, like, energetic thing that we got to do. Whereas everyone else seems kind of like, like blinking in the light. and be Like, oh, God, we've got an election. And I, and I, I mean, I knew we were never going to win. You know, because I mean, Nigel Farage was running parallel to us, you know, against us, and he was Mister Brexit. There's, there's no way we're going to win, but we we could we could do some interesting things, maybe change some minds and and cause a bit of a stir, which I think we successfully did. Did you enjoy uh, the
0: whole speaking aspect of it? It was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So the
1: the it was it was a great adventure because mm. we didn't know what we were going to find, mm. and so in some small towns we we had uh, not just small towns, in some cities like in Plymouth we had well 500 people turn up to see us in the middle of the day uh, just in plymouth and so that that was huge you know it was a lovely day it was like monday afternoon or something like that and so getting 500 people out on a monday afternoon seemed like a big deal to me uh, but then in some places like Totnes, uh you we 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 were we were met with a very large and angry crowd of insufferable middle-class left-wing prats mm-hmm. and they had they're like oh refuse fascism refuse fascism. It's like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know we're 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 here for Brexit. Mm-hmm. We want to leave the fascists if that's okay mm-hmm. with you. You know we're we and I and I remember having some fantastic conversations. Uh, I had a I had a conversation with one woman and she went off angry at me. And then this chap who was literally stood next to her said, "Well, I just think you wouldn't platform a woman." Just, not engaging their brains they're, they're engaged in virtue signaling and mm-hmm. trying to you know desperately make it look like oh i'm so good and left wing and it's like yeah is there good in the left wing though i'm struggling to see it you know
0: would you do it again i mean i don't i don't necessarily mean for ukip i mean yeah. at all i mean would you stand for elected office
1: um i think i would probably save my wife the headache of it Really? because well yeah because I mean if it was just me if I was a single man yes definitely because it was great fun yeah. and I, I enjoy uh, going and talking to all of these people and, and doing all of this stuff and it was exciting it mm. was really exciting and really gratifying as well yeah. um, and you, you get to speak to a huge range of people that you just don't expect are out there and it was really fun and uh, yeah I guess there's something in me that enjoys being a showman as well you know mm. see when, when you're uh Going back and forth with the left, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the left-wing activists who are never very well educated in their own subject, uh, and uh, well, but when when it came to the very end of the uh, the tour, I think it was in Exeter, uh, the left-wingers uh, they they had their their chants. They've got this cult-like chants mm-hmm. that they have, and uh, the, one of the chant leaders was just saying, "Don't talk to him. He's a professional. You won't win." It's like. Oh, okay. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you very much. You know, um, but so uh, yeah, no, I was very proud of that. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, I knew we weren't going to win or anything, so we uh, we just had a good time with it, and I got Milo Yiannopoulos across. So a very controversial uh, man, but he's a good friend of mine, and he came over and he did a brilliant job uh, with the crowd because again, he's a natural showman. So it was it was just a tremendous fun thing. But I think uh, I think we're in different political environment. Yeah. where I think that the, the the tensions are too high. I think the left have extended themselves so far that they're afraid of losing because they do, they do know that they're vulnerable in certain areas mm. and they will absolutely come down as hard as they can on anyone that they feel is threatening their hegemony. Mm. And so I think at the moment what we have to do is kind of retire and encourage them to overextend encourage them Mm. to fail on their own terms Mm. because they absolutely will every left-wing project ends in tears Mm. and bloodshed and so we we actually we have a kind of not a leave of absence because that's not the right term but there's a there's a kind of bit of breathing room at the moment because the left are electorally terribly weak and in America, people are becoming aware that that the parents are rising up against critical race theory in their schools. They're going to start, uh, doubtless, replacing school boards and things mm-hmm. like this in at least Republican areas. For some reason, the Democrat areas are totally fine with just pure racism being taught. Um, but in Britain, we have people voting conservative. Not that we have a conservative government, uh, but we have people voting conservative, um, and so the culture is not going in the left's favor and in fact uh, recently i think it was nezreen malik wrote an article in the guardian mm. lamenting this, saying well, why are we losing the culture war why are the right li- winning the culture war they don't know they don't know what it is that makes people that animates them that gets mm. them to do the things that they do they don't understand because they've they've spent their entire lives and for generations now theorizing abstractly in academia rather than being among people and living lives yeah. with them yeah. Yeah
0: you influence a lot of people uh, there's no no question about that um what's the next sort of s- uh, logical stage really kinda in that because you you, you have this enormous uh, presence i mean you, you know you're one of the british pioneers there's no question about that mm-hmm. um where does it sort of go in your mind where would where you go well
1: i think um one, one of one of the one of the purposes behind Uh, LotusEaters.com is that it's an intellectual project Mm. because one of the things that conservatives are terrible at is theory. Uh, Where are they? Where are the conservative theorists? I mean, I doubt doubtless you you can name dozens and dozens and dozens of left-wing theorists, but the conservatives have got this great dearth. I mean, when Roger Scruton died, everyone's like, okay, well, that's conservatism over. Why is he the only one? Mm. You know, why Mm. is there only one conservative theorist, you know, examining what the conservative view of the world is? And since there seems to be this vast gap in the market, I suppose I'll probably end up trying to write a book and saying, well, look, I think that there's actually, this is what I can see. And I think that this is what it might be valuable to people. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this will influence conservative politicians to actually be conservative. Because I think that would be the ideal thing. Because it, it doesn't take much to be able to say, well, hang on a second. Like, uh, I mean, why, why, why is mass immigration bad? You know why is that the case the, i mean for example the left will say ah but but these these people are here to and and i've met immigrants well the last haircut i got was from a guy from turkey it's like why are we accepting immigrants from turkey why do they come here and he was like oh, i'm here i'm here to live out my dream and it's like this isn't some frontier country mm. that's unexplored that there's not the american west mm-hmm. you know this is a very ancient country that's currently struggling under the burden of millions of new arrivals and we don't know what to do with them. we don't know how to integrate them and they're forming what are effectively colonies on our soil? We need to talk about this. We need to be able to say, well, no, look, we, we don't hate you or anything, but you've got to understand, you've got to become familiar and normal, and you've got to act in the sort of way that the English act. You know, you've got to understand, we're happy to incorporate you, but you've just got to, we've got to be able to articulate that that's a necessary thing yeah. to happen. Uh, but we've also got to examine the reason why we're allowing these people in. Now, the Labour government under Tony Blair would say, oh, it's good, good for the economy. I don't care about the economy at all. You just shut down the country for a year. Don't tell me about the economy. You don't care about the economy, right? And then what's worse, though, is, okay, well, it's good for the economy. You're going to have, like, ethnic foods everywhere. So, oh, wonderful. So essentially what we're saying, and these people will be able to, you know, make their lives better. It's like, okay, but these are material reasons. These are mercenary reasons. They're here to make money for us and for themselves. So I, I don't know if that's wise. I don't know if that's really what we're talking about. Because especially if you take this kind of relational view of the world... And, you know, okay, so England's a very old place with these very old relationships. Well, a lot of them have been sundered. I mean, where are the Cockneys now? Mm -hmm. Because when I was growing up, I knew that parts of London Mm -hmm. were the Cockney parts of London. I believe they've all fled to Essex now. Mm -hmm. So they're currently living in exile away from what I guess we can call their homeland. Mm -hmm. So are we never going to talk about that? They're just going like, sorry, Cockneys. Sorry, Sadiq Khan's London is here now. You don't get a say in any of this. It's like that just seems cruel to me. And I don't yes. think we'd accept it for any other group outside of Britain. Oh,
0: no, no. It'd be positive, as you said earlier, celebrated. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, the thing is, uh, as well, is when you're arguing with people about, say, like hmm. they will suddenly move the goalpost. So if you're talking about economics, yep. they will, well, actually, no. it's usually when you're talking about cultural things,
1: they'll and they'll suddenly marks.
0: start, yes, but what about this? No, 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 Steady. wait a minute. One thing at a time, hmm. you know, economics, fine. The cultural effect is this, that, and the other, which yeah. is is never talked about. Really, it, no. it, it really. What, we had a great guy on called Michael Collins. He wrote a book called The Likes of Us, mm-hmm. all about the white working class in London. Mm-hmm. He did one of our our documentaries. Excellent, but that is the exception that proves the rule. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, look, we've been sitting here drenched in. Sweat, <laughs> but it's it's shame so, about the weather. But uh, it's such a pleasure, actually. Well, oh, thank uh, you. I mean, I I do hope um, that you know you will come back again. Uh, i really do, to our humble place. And um, you know, and all the very best with lotus Eaters. It's lotuses Yes. Right um i think it's, it's a fascinating project you've got going now i mean all these hit little history capsules too and everything.
1: but, but it's also just I, I really think we need to engage in a kind of laboratory of ideas what what is it that we're doing who are we where do we want to go what do yes. we want you know yeah. and and so we're we're very open to and we've got lots of very well qualified people. Everyone there has got much better qualifications than I do, uh, which which was remarkable. I didn't realise I'd have people with master's degrees applying for jobs and things like this, yeah. um, PhD students and things like that. But uh, no, it's it's very interesting. Like, laboratory. and do you do written work
0: on it too. Don't you? Yeah, so yeah, we we yeah.
1: Well, you know, written work, uh, articles, videos. Um, direct videos sort or of scripted videos you know we do lots of you
0: know of stuff and the, and the book you mentioned uh, that is something in your mind is it at the moment or is is, is that is that you actually thinking you know next year i might put by to yeah to-.
1: well I, i'm i'm developing what i think is essentially a kind of metaphysics of the english and i think it needs to be done i don't see anyone else doing it and i'm there, there are lots of things I have to read in advance of doing this uh, because I've got a bunch of books on my shelves because a hundred years ago you would get um, English professors writing books about Englishness mm. and they're very thick books mm. and I w- need to be able to find the time to put it aside but at the moment I'm doing the critical race theory stuff so I just haven't had the time mm. but um, in a couple of years I expect I'll write it, in I'll a couple of years. look forward
0: to that. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. My oh, pleasure. Benjamin. Benjamin. Uh, that's it for this week. Um, Please don't forget to subscribe and uh, we shall see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye.